Good morning, church. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, a season of waiting and expectation. Today we light the candle symbolizing peace and begin with readings from the prophet Isaiah. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. For a child will be born to us, a son shall be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars and the, myr- the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. In this season, we celebrate with a peace which is unexplainable apart from God's working in our midst. We do not hide our eyes from the painful realities of this world, but rather take refuge in the one who promises his people perfect peace while he works to make all things new. Now let us pray together with these words from Luke's Gospel. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Amen. And now we're going to have the teaching text read to us. Our teaching text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. We few, we happy few. Uh, welcome to everyone who's, uh, who's traveled in from out of town to be here with your family for, for Christmas. We're so glad to have you. Let me say a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, some of us have heard these words uh, for so many years now that um, they may fail to surprise us. And uh, I just pray for these next few moments that you would give us um, 
a sense of your peace as we just lit that candle of peace. I pray that you would be near to us in a way that we could, uh, we would know it. We would be aware of your presence. We could have ears to hear for just a few minutes in, in, in the busyness of this season to ring out the beauty and the truth and the meaning in, uh, in these familiar words. Help us. Come Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So have you ever had an experience uh, that was so moving or memorable or hilarious uh, that you wonder how on earth you're going to tell someone about it in a way that you can get them there, that you can sort of bring them along into the experience um, this is a, a classic pastoral uh, rhetorical question because I'm guessing that, of course, of course you have a story like that. This is why we have a phrase in circulation like you had to be there because we all have felt that, you know that, that sort of social moment where you're trying to explain one of your amazing stories to someone and you can just see on their face they're not getting it at all. They're not, they're not there with you. They're, they're not laughing at the right moments. Their eyes are not going wide at, at, the, at the amazing parts. Um, and so you're like, ah, never mind, you had to be there. You sort of dismiss the story. But some of you, you have a few stories that are so important, that are so hilarious or memorable or, or, or whatever, that you've learned how to tell these particular stories in the most meaningful ways. Like you've practiced the lead up, the middle parts, the ending, you know just how to like create the tension as, as you're moving through. These are the kinds of stories that you tell around Christmas, right? They, I, I, I noted, it, like you, you marry someone, you, you move into their family, and I remember my first holidays with Allison's family and sitting around the table and like I started to notice a few repeat stories that came around that came around like the time their their uh, uh, their dog accidentally backed out of a 7-Eleven parking lot on his own like this was a story that kept coming up and it's it's a hilarious one and I have my own stories that are that are like this there's the time my friend Johnny was five feet away from the top of a waterfall and he's reaching for the last handhold and he slips and he goes right past me he's like help 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 and like three of us miss him and then he disappears over a 60 foot cliff and I'm like I just saw my friend die that's it and we go we climb down we're scrambling we find Johnny laying there he's alive but groaning in a pool of water like this deep and we're like what on earth are we going to do he's immobilized I have no idea how we're going to get him out there's a scout leader at the bottom in the lake who's literally giving his scouts a lesson you see what these idiots are doing never do this he runs up the hill and rescues us and carries Johnny down carries Johnny down the hill or um, then there's the time when I ran away from my family vacation when I was 16 and I hitchhiked across Oregon to a Greyhound station and used all my, fam- all my summer, summer uh, job money uh, from Chuck E. Cheese to buy a bus ticket across the country to flee from my family. These are the stories you tell around Christmas, right? There's the time I lost a bet to Matthew Broderick. $50 at, Bro- at Broadway bowling night. He, he was randomly sitting there not bowling. We bet on the Yankees-Orioles game. I lose, and our current technical director at the church at the time, James Sinero, has to cover me on the bet because I didn't have it. But then Ferris Bueller himself uses the money to buy us a drink. What a guy. Right, you have these, you have these, you have these stories. Stories that you learn to tell so that someone will get the full picture, so that someone will be right there in the moment with you, so that they'll laugh at the right, at the right time, so that they'll feel, feel the tension. By the time... John is writing his gospel. The story of Jesus has already been circulating for for many years, uh, for for quite a while. Many of the eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus have already already traversed 
much of the known world telling the story of Jesus, communicating the, the message. And John, who, is, who makes a point to tell us that he was also an eyewitness, who was one of the 12, has become something like a grandfather in, in the early church. And even though there were already three accounts that were circulating about the life of Jesus, John is writing with, with like grandfatherly care for the early church to say there's parts of this story that you, you can't miss. And so he's writing to, to fill in some crucial details. He's like, I, I'm going to pass at some point, probably relatively soon, these stories can't, that, like what I saw, you have to know. And so he's working on telling one of those stories that he, he absolutely can't fall back on, oh, you, had to, you just had to be there. He has this tremendous responsibility as, as, a, as a father in the church, a grandfather in this, in this new community, as the, as the first generation of those who walked with Christ are going to be gone, to pass this story on in, in, in a way that all of its significance will be, will be there. So we've been looking at just the first 18 verses of John's gospel for all the weeks of Advent. So just in the way of review, he has been carefully crafting the opening of this, of this story. He's put in some tremendously thoughtful work. So a, a, as we've seen, he, he, he truly considered how he's going to open this account, right? Do you ever do this where you start, you look at a novel, you open up, decide if you're going to read it? I read the first sentence. You, ju- you, judge, you judge a story by how, how, how it opens. We, 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 st- we spoke on the first Sunday of Advent about famous openings. Call, call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. John is, is, is being so intentional about how he begins. He starts at the, at the creation moment as it's recorded in Torah, in the beginning, Right? So you can't hear in the beginning and be a, Ju- a Jewish person in the first century and your mind not go back to, to Torah, to the beginning of the story. This is how your whole faith narrative begins. But he doesn't just do that. He also brings in sort of like the leading philosophy of the day. He says the word, but the translation of the wor- word in our English, English uh, scriptures is, is the word logos in Greek, which was the leading uh, philosopher of his day was this concept of... of um, this force that linked together the world and, 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 and gave it meaning and purpose. And as you move through this preamble, he's stretching the language. He's using poetry. He's using metaphor, light and dark. Because what he's trying to describe transcends description. <laughs> he's trying to use words to describe what he's calling an infinite word. And you can see that he has to use these sort of you see this in the New Testament a lot, like metaphors piled on top of metaphors because what you're saying is the actual reality of what you're getting at transcends language. He sets historical context for us. He gives us this picture of John the Baptist. It sort of comes unexpectedly after the poetry of the light and the dark and the life that gives life to all mankind. Then all of a sudden we have this wild roving prophet who happens to be a cousin of Jesus and he's narrowing down. He gets to the very countryside where Jesus is going to begin his ministry. So John is a very caring communicator. He's, he's attempting to, to get us there. Uh, I, I, thankfully, I, I believe he had some help, that he had help from the Holy Spirit in, in, in crafting this opening. But then by verse 14, and this is really important, you get a sense that he does something he's been longing to do. It's like he cannot contain himself anymore, and so he drops a phrase. He drops the word we for the first time in the text. In verse 14, John says the word we, and he says, we have seen him. 
we have received in verse 16. He hasn't in all the previous verses, he hasn't said the word. He started at the widest possible angle. Let's get the, all, all the Jewish people involved. Let's get all the Greeks involved. Let's bring the whole story in. Let's use poetry and that metaphor to get you understanding that what I'm talking about actually transcends language. That it's the most cosmic, powerful, beautiful, majestic thing in all the world. And then, oh, and I met him. Broadway bowling night. He's just sitting there. Can't believe it. My hero from childhood, right? I met him. It comes, it comes after maybe the most celebrated sentence in John's gospel that we read over and over at Advent and Christmas time. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The furthest reaching scope of your philosophical imagination about what life is all about came in the, in the form of a person. Right? We talked about the translation of this last week. The, the, the Logos took on a body... And tabernacled among us. That's the translation of that phrase. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and, and as Jewish hearers would have thought of the tabernacle, right? This, this tent that traveled with the nation of Israel where the Shekinah glory of Yahweh was. And if you got close enough to this tent, you would experience what God is really like. He's saying the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You say it one other way. We, we did this last week, but the very source... The very source who gives shape and meaning to life has come into the world. He's come into the world in the one form we can most completely understand and relate to. But he hasn't just come to relate to us. He's come to embrace us, to be embraced by us. This person, this poetic, mysterious reality in flesh was like a traveling tent in our midst. And if you got near enough to it, you would learn significantly what God is really like. After that, John is like, and guess what? We met him. We met him. We walked with him. We talked with him. We shared meals with him. We, 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 ate, we ate together. We heard him teach, but we also heard him when no one else was watching. We walked along the road. I have a, I have a debate with, with my sons. Um, I also, they just looked up. Uh, what's up, guys? Um, and actually with anyone, I'll have this debate with you immediately after the service if you'd like, about who the best basketball player ever is. Um, and you have, you have people who, who contend for the newer guys. We're, we're watching a great generation of the NBA right now. I, I save you guys most of the time from sports illustrations, but we're going there, okay? It's Christmas. This is a gift to me. Um, so you got LeBron, right? He's, he's maybe the most sort of like contended for current player that gets mentioned in the, in the greatest of all time conversation. You've got, we're like Durant, an amazing scorer. Kobe just retired. Or maybe you're like, you're, you're one of those people who's like, you know, sort of always contending for the older generation. Like, give me Bill Russell all day long. You don't know about Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain. But for me, there's really no question at all. Clearly, the greatest basketball player of all time is. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Michael Jordan, right? I, and so I can sit there, and this is an important part of raising up uh, my, my sons. I can, I, I can sit there and I can give them his resume, the six championships, the, the utter domination, um, his ability to score at will. But then my favorite part of the story is to say, I met him. I met him. I met Michael Jordan. I was 10 years old. It was 1991, the Charlotte All-Star Game. One of my father's greatest gifts to me was he took me to this game, and we're walking around the Omni Hotel, right? We went to the hotel where we knew the players were staying, and my dad greases the wheels. He gives like a 50 to a maid. He's like, tell us what players are staying on what floor. 
And so we go up and we're waiting on Michael Jordan's floor and then he comes out. Like really, it happens. I'm 10 years old. I'm literally Michael Jordan shoes, Chicago Bulls sweatshirt, or sweatshirt, Chicago Bulls pants, and Jordan hat. My pathetic father's in a Celtic sweatshirt. <laughs> Jordan comes down, he's carrying his golf clubs and we're just like, I mean, I, literally, I don't drop to my knees and sing at this moment, but like my 10-year-old self is in absolute wonder. We take pictures with him. He signs a basketball for me. We talk. We, we talk. We talked. I'm sure he remembers it. I'm sure it was a meaningful time for him. That, when, I th- when I think of that, that, that's what my mind is, is brought back to. Right? Of course, it's like many degrees less important, but John is saying, I met him. I'm not just talking to you about his resume. I'm not just talking to you about why he's a religious figure that you should have adoration for in an ethereal idea sort of way. I'm talking about this person embraced me and it changed everything about my life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's magnificent, but then we have seen him. We have received from him. We, right? I I knew him. He was my friend. And that's important. I knew him. He was my friend. But that's not all. He uses the we there. There was a ragtag group of followers, the 12, and then an extended group that followed Jesus around. And, and they could not have been more different. We've talked in, in this, these services many times before about the wild differences that were present in Jesus' closest followers. You have Simon the Zealot who believes in absolutely political guerrilla warfare. And then you have Matthew the tax collector who had sold out to the occupying force at Rome. And the two of them are brought together on the same same team, the same 12. We knew him. We didn't pick things up right away. We fought amongst ourselves, but we received. We all saw him. We all knew him. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. I had never really caught this in my many years of looking at this. These two we's are, are incredibly important. And I think that John was bursting to write them. When he writes his other letter to the church that we have later in the New Testament, 1 John, he doesn't even, he barely gets a sentence in before he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our, heart and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The we's take all that we have heard up to this point and they root them in a personal relationship. In a I met him moment. In a he was my friend. There's a tremendous difference, right? There's a tremendous difference between a God who can do all of these incredible things and a God who has done them for you. Christmas, whatever else it is, is a time to recognize the lengths God has gone to know you and to be known by you. And my question for us on the fourth Sunday of Advent is how does that change our everyday life? The lengths God has gone to know you and to be known by you. Before the second phrase, we have received, comes, comes an, an, another phrase. And I just want us to spend just a few moments on this because I haven't been able to get this out of my mind. If you notice it as we were coming through there, it says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Out of his fullness. This phrase caught my eye and continued to return to my mind throughout, throughout Advent. Um, 
And, and I just want to put it to you and, and ask a couple of questions. Out of his fullness, what does it mean to you that God is full? That God has, has a fullness to his being, to his nature, to the promises that he made, to the life that he has and offers that whatever else is happening in all, all of the gospel, it is coming out of the fullness of God. I, I started to think about this because I think that nearly everything that causes us pain as human beings, that's a, a broad statement, but nearly everything that causes us pain as human, as human beings and as, a, and as a society begins with a perceived lack. We desire and we long but we do not have or sense that we have what we need. And whatever it is, whether it's love or affection or, or money or power or friendship or, or peace. And so we find ourselves in conflict internally. We're in conflict in our own hearts and minds about that real or perceived lack. Over really significant and important things. Things that we actually do need or things that we actually profoundly want. In conflict internally, but that leads us to conflict with one another, right? Where this person has what we want, or or they're withholding from us, and so we're in conflict internally and with other people and with our world, with our actual society. All the way back in the beginning of Torah and the beginning of Genesis, the first lie, the first temptation, was designed to stir up a sense of lack that God did not have all that we really needed. Or that God wasn't willing to give us what we really needed. And so we would need to get it for ourselves. Forget the relationship and get what you need. That's the first lie, the first temptation. It's still the message that's spoken to us in in a variety of ways in our world. Love is a great idea. But when it comes down to it, really, you have to get what you need. And maybe you're like, yeah, yeah, of course, It's so compelling, it's so woven into the normal, dominant narrative of our world that we can forget that it's actually a tremendously isolating lie. No matter how tempting it is to forget the relationship so that you can get what you need, leaves you alone. The repair of that first lie in the narrative of redemption that we find all through the scriptures, all of the horrific aftermath that comes from from the fall. It begins with a recognition that this God, whom we're dealing with, whatever else this God is like, he has no lack whatsoever. This God has love in his very being, in his very nature. This God does not just give abundant life, this God is abundant life. This God is the only one of whom we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right, we... Like as you, we've talked about this before, but rock to plant, plant to animal, animal to human being. Like we see like degrees of, of, of the nature of being, but we can't make the next leap to whatever God is, right? And yet somehow mysteriously in the character of God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So there is love and relationship in the person of God. And there is no lack whatsoever, so I just want to give you a couple phrases that, that just kept coming back to my mind, thinking about fullness. The, the two of them are right there on the surface of the text. Like, we receive grace in place of grace already given. So whatever God's fullness means, it, it at least means that he's full of grace upon grace. So just think about that with me for a second. What, what on earth does that mean? Over and over again, God refuses to stay distant 
Over and over again in the narrative of the scriptures, God continues to to be involved in the work of redemption. I want to say, you can't come to the end of God's ability to restore. So Jesus is not, of course, he's not the first revelation we have of the grace of God, but he is the most complete. So this morning, I want you to think about this just for a second with me, that we have a God who is full of grace. Is that the perception that you have of God? What do you... What's the perception that you have that God has of you? Is it that he's so utterly eager to forgive, eager to embrace, eager to show love? Not shocked at all by anything that you could do or think? Longing to show the fullness of who he is? His love, his healing, his restoring grace? We can, we can sort of understand this, right? A lot of times we can understand an aspect of the divine by considering the human equivalent for just a minute. Many of us know what it feels like to have something in us that we want to be expressed. And we're looking for the right outlet. I wish this thing that's in me other people could see and experience and know. So it's like a piece of art or an idea for a, a startup or, 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 or something that, that, that you want to communicate. And you feel that God is saying, I want to, I love to communicate something that is essential about my very being, and it is grace. I love to communicate grace. Does that picture of God resonate with the one that you have in your mind? The second phrase I want to give you, I I think, is, is sort of taken right out of the text as well. It says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way, everything God asks, he supplies. I, I want, we just lit the candle of peace. That, that phrase is meant to, to give our hearts a lightness and a joy. Everything that God asks, God supplies. It was a tremendous grace for God to give his word through Moses, to give the law. To shape and form a people who would live as his children in the world, right? Israel's vocation, Israel's calling was to represent Yahweh in the world. But they had been slaves in Egypt for, for, for generations, 400 years. So they had a culture of slavery. They come out, they're passing through Sinai. And when God gives the law to them, it's to reform people from a slave mentality into a culture of the free people of God. To stand up, to walk in the world as representatives of Yahweh. And yet the story shows us that the people failed over and over and over again to really keep the the finer points of the law and then the very heart of it, right? They still are hurting one another. They're still dealing out of that perceived lack and hurting one another and saying, we're not sure that God really is going to keep his end of the deal and so we're going to go our own way. But God will not give up on this worldwide redemption project. If no one could walk in the way that we most need for full life, he would come and do it himself. And This is the Christmas message. I love what Fleming Rutledge says about this. Just sort of let this wash over you. Everything he asks, he supplies. The mercy of God does not depend on human virtue for its fulfillment. Something has moved. It is not human beings who have moved. It is God who has moved. This announcement, Emmanuel, God with us, we are not abandoned. The power that created the universe with a word and could equally destroy it with a word is not against us, but for us. God has moved, not we to him, but he to us. The angel Gabriel bisected the ghastly yellow clouds. The sons and daughters will be raised from the dead and the human family will be restored around the table of the Lord. I I cannot tell you why it takes so long. 
and why it costs so much pain, I can tell you this. We are speaking today not about human hopes and human wishes and human dreams, but about God. What is happening at Christmas is not for man, but from God. Everything that God asks for us to be welcomed into the family, for us to have a share in redemption, to be brought into the kingdom, he has supplied. The final thing I want to say about his fullness is that you cannot come to the end of God's love. God will come all the way to meet you. That's what the baby in the manger represents. God will come all the way to meet you. Right? We have this story pouring off of Jesus' lips about the, the, the prodigal son who had abandoned his family. He's coming back with his rehearsed speech, trying to get back in. And the father runs out to him with, with actually extravagant prodigal love. And that's the message of Advent. The message of Christmas is that God is coming to us all the way. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. I want to say this to you, Trinity Grace Park Slope. Whatever you're willing to surrender to God, he can utterly surpass in giving back to you. Jesus says that like, whatever you sacrifice on my behalf, you're going to receive back from me. In the, and not just in some forever by and by, in abundant life now, in a life centered on love now, in a life where, where God's very spirit electrifies your, 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 your life. Trusting that is the essence of faith, right? That is where the perceived lack and the promises of God come into tension. You're never going to have enough. You're going to have to get it yourself. You're going to have to always choose you and God saying, listen, let me give you fullness. The fullness that's true of me, let, let me make that true in you. So what do we do with this? That's all wonderful. We have to get to the point where John was like, yeah. And on top of all that, I met him. <laughs> he was my friend. We walked around together. I think John might say at the end of this Advent message, come and rest your head on him. Is that too intimate, <laughs> too awkward? Listen to how the section ends. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The translation of that, of that phrase, in the closest relationship, is a very intimate phrase. It means in the bosom. The Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known to us. No one has ever seen this legendary Yahweh who shook Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning, and we're not going anywhere near them. You've heard so much about him, but now the one who knows him best, the one who's allowed to lay his head on Yahweh's chest, has made him known. I should have gotten permission for this, but I'm taking a risk. My, my oldest is 12 now. So there's not too much like cuddling anymore. Like we're going to go through a phrase for, I'm imagining from like now 12 to what, like 30 where cuddling is out. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's coming back. But yesterday we're sitting there and uh, just sort of like we had been, uh, confession, we've been playing Fortnite. I'm trying to get on board as a dad and learn the cool things and it's really working. Um, he, come, he comes over and he lays his head on my chest, right? And for me, I'm just sort of like, here we are. And, and, in, and in a moment, right, I can remember this kid being bored. 
right? I can remember everything that's happened. He's, 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 tw- he's 12 years old now. He's starting to smell worse. It's like more showers necessary, friend. But I'm sitting there and I'm, 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 I'm kind of holding him. I'm like, man, this is, I, I hope we have more, like a lot more of these because it's so powerful, like, to be able to think about his whole life in just that moment. Like, only the closest relationships can you lay your head on someone's chest. That's the translation that's here. The son who's in the bosom of the father is coming and saying, let me tell you what he's really like. Let me show you what it, what it looks like, what it feels like. I think I've said in years past, if you want to find out if this is truly an intimate place, go on the subway, go on the F train, try to lay your head on the bosom. <laughs> Negative results every time I've found. Just kidding, I've never tried that. That's super weird. You know something that's interesting, though, is, is John, who writes this, by the time we get to the Last Supper, there's a little note in the text that says, John lays his head on Jesus' chest. Like Jesus is in the bosom of the Father and he comes to make this legendary Yahweh known to us. And, and it's so profound and powerful and it, it extends the covenant that God has made with Israel to the entire world. And, and Jesus is saying, my body's broken for you, my blood is shed for you. And while that's happening, John lays his head on his chest. And John is going to become someone who makes Jesus known in the world, even through the, the writing of this very gospel. And he's saying, listen, this is the key. Come and rest your head on his chest. You'll come to know him and you'll experience peace. We lit the candle of peace this morning. What kind of peace is possible when you know the fullness of God and also the nearness of God? Like a God who's full, that's great, but it might be intimidating and distant. Or a God who's intimate and, and loves you and is a great life coach but doesn't have any real power in the world, that's also a little bit. But a God who is full and a God who says, come lay your head on my chest. A God who's not lacking anything, who's longing to give you a share of his life, that can be full peace. And that God, what you're going to learn is that he's looking to make you a peacemaker. In the same way that John lays his head and becomes a communicator of intim- the possibility of intimacy with Christ. We'll close this way. During Advent, we, we read a lot of promises of what's to come, centuries before Jesus comes. One of the most famous ones is in, is in Isaiah 9, and you'll recognize right, right in between these two famous phrases, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And then a, a little bit down, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, lodged right in between those two famous phrases, is this. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Just want the poetry of that piece to wash over us for a moment. Because these promises come right in the middle of real life. Right? Isaiah is dealing with King Ahaz in a political turmoil. He's, he's literally like, meet me at this specific place on the road. I've got some things I've got to tell you. In spite of all of your failure, God's not done with you. And then he gives this promise right in the middle of real life. When, when, when God tells David that there's someone that's going to sit on his throne throughout all generations, it comes right after his son has betrayed him and attempted to kill him and died himself. 
These Advent promises, they're, they're not just for the n- nice and clean and, and put together people who have it all worked out. It is peace in a world of turmoil and conflict because that's where you need peace. And it said he is shattered the yoke that burdens them. He's removed the rod of their oppressors. Some of us are carrying burdens and we desperately need them to be shattered. Some of us know what it feels like to live life as if there's a bar across your shoulders that is just weighing you down. Some of you know the rod of the oppressor. There are things in your life that, right, patterns of thought or behavior or circumstances that you just cannot get rid of. You cannot get free from. A thing that will not let you go. What peace would it be to let go of those things, to lay your head on Christ and to know that he has the fullness there to accept his embrace. Later in the New Testament, it says, he himself is our peace. He's removed the dividing wall of hostility. So my Christmas message to you is come and rest. Come and rest. Come and be embraced by the one who gives grace out of a never-ending supply, who continually gives love without end. I want to know if you can hear God saying, I am not against you. I am with you. I am not against you. I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. God, I want to simply ask that we could experience your peace this morning. Not as a beautiful idea, but as an experience of embrace. I pray there would be a sense of your presence here, and I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit. In the quiet places of our minds and hearts, you might help us to know what you want us to hear today. Thank you, God. We join our hearts together and say we give you praise for being the prince of peace and coming in incarnation to embrace us. We hear these things and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.